0: a family member in another state who when she was in kindergarten was asked by her kindergarten teacher what she wanted to be when she grew up and unlike the other children she had an elaborate and detailed plan of what was going to take place and some of those details included three children and she was going to marry Jack a fellow kindergarten kid in her class now i don't think jack was in on that plan he I think that he learned that that day, but she was going to marry Jack. And she and Jack were going to have a a veterinarian service uh, called Fluffy Tails or something to that effect. And um, they were going to be madly in love with each other. In fact, she said, I'm going to love Jack so much that he could burp in my face and the wind from his breath would be like rustling wind through my hair. (laughs) And she told her mother this, and her mother said, If your daddy burped in my face, I would not think it was wind rustling through my hair. And she said, but mama, you don't love daddy the way I love Jack. (laughs) You know, when you're in kindergarten, you can afford to be a little naive about love, can't you? When you're in kindergarten, you can afford to have uh, a lack of awareness over some of the ups and downs and the realities of uh, relationships. Did you know that when God gets into a relationship with us through Jesus Christ, He's not a bit naive. He knows what He's getting into. He knows every bit of it. When when He brings you to Himself, and and even if He hasn't, He knows the heartache and disappointment you're going to bring to Him. He knows how you're going to disappoint Him. He knows how you're going to, to hurt Him. And yet, beloved, He wants you anyway. And He brings you to Himself anyway in Jesus Christ. I think that's a good way to summarize the whole book of Titus. And I want to address that this morning. And I've got a lot of confidence in uh, the Bible. uh, And and that includes, of course, the book of Titus. Because it's something I learned a number of years ago when I did a funeral for my uh, grandfather or participated in it. My father's father passed away in 1986 and I uh, drove from Marshall down to Houston to help conduct his funeral. And I don't know about your family, but my family's the kind of family that will not let teenagers and young adults get older and grow up. They always treat you younger than what you really are. And by this time in my um, college life, I was on staff at a church and I'd preached many places and traveled a little bit and uh, had gone before some larger audiences. Even at that age, I started when I was way too young. But uh, they didn't trust me with the funeral message. And that bothered me. I was flummoxed over that. that. That really bothered me. I thought, well, this is my grandfather, and there's nobody that uh, would have a more meaningful thing to say and personal thing to say than, than me, and no one else is going to do it because I'm the only preacher in the family. Well, what they did is that they assigned me to read the 23rd Psalm. So instead of preaching the funeral message, as I have done before for other family members in my mother's family, I had to read the Scripture. And I got to thinking about that, and I thought, you know what? My attitude is not good. I need to reconsider this. I really do. And I thought about it, and the thought occurred to me that as I read the 23rd Psalm in that funeral, that was the only time in my life when I could be certain everything I was saying was true, and that I wouldn't make a mistake because of the nature of the Word of God. Jesus said, Thy Word is truth. And the law of the Lord is perfect, according to Psalms 19.7. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what we're looking at here. And, And so what we're looking at here is that we're looking at the testimony of a God who, when he got into relationship with you, and even if you're not in Christ with him this morning, still has a strong, bubbling, boiling, blazing affection for you, knowing the failure you're going to deposit at his feet, And he gives an inerrant and completely accurate and transparent testimony of it in the book of Titus. Titus highlights these factors and these truths in the scripture. And that's why it's so important for our church to be a church of the ministry of the word. And and, and never pull back on it. Never insult our people with low expectations about their digest and consumption of the word of God. Privately and in our church ministry. And and so there are two things that are enormously important that are coming up, uh, in fact, next week, uh, starting Wednesday, in our church ministry. We're making some changes to our worship service in the evenings on Wednesday and in the afternoons. Our our student ministry wants the opportunity to get more students and be more evangelistic on Wednesday nights, so they're moving their Sunday nights to Wednesday nights, and they're going to meet in Building D uh, at 6 o'clock. And so we're moving our adults over here to the uh, main facility at 6 o'clock here in the worship center. And, and, and the 4 o'clock worship service that we do on Wednesday afternoons will be in room 107 down in building B. We're doing that to give them an opportunity to grow and to magnify Christ and to reach more kids for Christ. It's more likely they can do it on Wednesdays than Sundays. And uh, so we're going to experiment with that during the fall is what we will Uh, do during that time. And this Wednesday night, we will start a study of the book of Titus, and I'm going to introduce Titus to you today. So that's the first thing, our Wednesday worship. Second happens to be that starting the following Sunday night, August 5th, next Sunday, we are expanding our Bible study options for our church family. And you've got in your worship guide a sign-up sheet, and I want to ask every one of you to sign up for something uh, today. I want you to put it in the offering plate or give it to one of the sign-up tables that are near the exits, but we want you to be a part of that on Sunday nights starting at 5.30 and on Wednesday nights. I'm convinced, and I know a lot don't expect this, and I know, unfortunately, some church leadership has very low expectations of its membership. I'm not in that number. I really do expect and want Sunday nights and Wednesday nights to be as large as Sunday mornings. The health of the church depends on it. Now, there are a few folks that are sick and a few folks that are incapable of doing so. They've they've got, uh, they're in nursing or they're in uh, policing and law enforcement and they've got schedules where they can't do that. That knocks out about a dozen people in our church. The rest of us can faithfully participate uh, in these things. And you find on one side a synopsis of the courses we're offering on uh, Sunday evenings. And I want you to sign up for these and place it in the offering plate or give it to one of the tables, sign-up tables, as you leave uh, today, If you need more information, we'll be glad to help you. And Titus points to this, in fact. This kind of emphasis on the Word of God. Here in Titus, Paul uh, instructed Titus and said that the teaching ministry of the church will offer multiple levels and opportunities for salvation to the world. Uh, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, this summarizes really the book of Titus and previews it. Uh, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested His word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus. A true son in our common faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, this text here points us to the primary subjects of the book of Titus. Um, And we find in Titus, there are, uh, for example, 95 different ethical terms. Being of sober spirit, avoiding godliness, uh, Uh, pursuing godliness, and and, and the like. Ninety-five ethical terms with three very long lists of ethical terms, some positive and some negative. And and then there are 50 references to salvation or God being Savior in the text. And the two uh, together make an awful lot of sense. There are 29 terms referring to the Trinity, either the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. Uh, then there are 15 terms referring to the ministry of the Word, where Paul tells Titus, preach these things, rebuke, exhort, insist upon them, do so with authority, he says. Fifteen times he addresses the teaching and preaching ministry of the church. Now, there are three groups that he addresses in the text, and they're in the different chapters here. In chapter 1, he's addressing leadership. In chapter 2, he's addressing the laity or lay people. And in chapter 3, he's addressing those that are lost without Jesus Christ, who've never turned to Jesus Christ. And his whole point is this. God saves at multiple levels in multiple ways through the preaching and teaching ministry of the local church. And that's what he's saying in in this text. And that's why it's so urgent for us to have a healthy diet of Sunday night and Wednesday night offerings and Bible study. Uh, That's why it's so important for us to uh, start and multiply Sunday school classes. The number one predictor of church growth is the multiplication of Sunday school classes. And and, and the third thing is that it's terribly important for us to retain what we hear through sermon notes. Most of us don't have a memory good enough to remember what was said the previous Sunday, and so we need notes. And, And that might help us with the fourth thing, and that is doing family devotions whether we're uh, uh, married without children, married with children, uh, married with children that are now gone, whatever it may be, or no children at all, if there's anyone else in the house, to take some time to look into the Word of God every day and to pray and seek the Lord and to do family devotions. Because God saves at multiple levels when His people are involved in the preaching and teaching ministry of the local church. Well, how is it and who is it that God Saves Well, the first is this. In chapter 1, God uses the word to save leadership from scandal and to lead them to influence. He saves them from scandal and leads them to influence. Now, Paul talks about leadership in chapter 1, verse 1, his own. He's a bondservant, and that's the first lesson of leadership. And he's an apostle. He's sent. He goes where God wants him. Well, he picks up that same theme in verse 5 and carries it to the end of chapter 1 in verse number 16. Beginning in verse 5, he addresses the qualifications for pastors and for staff. Uh, he starts and talks about them as elders, then changes his terminology and talks about them as bishops. Well, that's synonymous. And we have an elder system here at Beach Haven. It's not like others, but it's a biblical elder system where the pastor and staff are elders. You never find a layperson being an elder in the Scripture. It's never announced that way, even though it seems to be popular in some places. The elders happen to be the pastor and The staff. And it doesn't necessarily refer to chronological age, it should refer to spiritual maturity. And that's addressed in verses five through nine. And the key here is verse number six. If a man's blameless, he can serve. And then he goes on to elaborate on that. But in verse number 10 through 16, he picks up and moves, excuse me, from qualified leadership to disqualified leadership. Apparently, in the churches that Titus was working with on the island of Crete, there are some that had crept in, and even in the ancient first century church, there were some that had crept in, and they were wrecking havoc even in households, and especially the churches, teaching things they should not be teaching. And that's what Paul talks about beginning in verse number 10. Look here. For there are many insubordinate, not just a few, not some scattered, but there are many insubordinate both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So, so they're Jewish in background. Whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. And then he goes on and tells him in verse 13, Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and the commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. I'll elaborate on that later, but there are some people that are always looking for innuendo in about everything other people say, looking for some kind of innuendo. And then uh, there, there are some, anytime you announce something, they're very suspicious of people that you compliment. So to the unbelieving and defiled, nothing's pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. Now look at this, verse 16. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, Being an abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. This is intense and it is harsh. And Paul is not real casual about this. I imagine he is rather worked up and intense in announcing the danger and the threat of these false teachers in this church. Look, leadership through the ministry of the word, receiving the word and applying it, leadership has got to be qualified because the stakes are high. The salvation of the world is in the balance. And that's why even today, more than 30 years after it happened, I still grieve over the great high-profile scandals of the 80s with the uh, television, Christian television personalities. Do you remember that? How heartbreaking it was to wake up around Thanksgiving and find that one of them was being exposed by a national paper because another had accused him of some things. And a few months later, it was found out that he was in trouble too. Engaging in some of the same behavior. At that time, Southern Baptist had more than 2,000 vocational evangelists. That means their full time work was to travel the nation, preaching in churches and other venues, and inviting men and women, boys and girls, to come to Christ. At that time, in about 1986, we had more than 2,000. Today, our fellowship hall would be too large for that group. It's under 200. And we are struggling powerfully as the most evangelistic denomination in the nation and perhaps the history of the world to reach people for Christ. Our baptism numbers are now down to pre-World War II level among Southern Baptists. And the world used to count on us to lead by example and lead the way. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got to be qualified. Leadership has got to be qualified because the stakes are high. The salvation of the world is dependent upon getting the word. Do whatever you've got to do to be qualified and to stay qualified. Jesus elaborated on this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 through 30. Now, he's a Jewish rabbi, and as a good teacher, he would overstate the case to make a point. But do you remember where he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, do what with it? Pluck it out if your right hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. Well, does he want you to engage in mutilation and amputation? No, he's a Jewish teacher. He's a a teacher, so he would overstate the case to make a point. My grandmother used to do this with the hot, humid weather in Houston, Texas years ago, and she would say, it is hot as blue blazes. First time I heard that as a boy, I looked around for blue blazes. Well, she was exaggerating to make a point. Teachers do that, and the exaggeration is obvious. Jesus does not want you to gauge in mutilation or amputation, but here's what he's saying. Whatever it takes to have victory, do it. Go to any length to be right with God because the stakes are high. Now, the preaching and teaching of the Word is going to help leadership do that. It will save us from scandal and carry us to influence. But there's a second thing. That's found in chapter 2. And that is, God uses the word to save laity from skepticism to illustration. Instead of creating skepticism, they're an illustration of the grace of God. Now, Paul anticipates this in verse number 1. He talks about the truth, which is according to godliness. He talks about God who cannot lie. So when he comes into someone's life through Christ, he purges lies. And so it's no surprise that he picks up on similar themes in chapter 2. And look at whom he addresses in chapter 2, beginning in verse number 2. He first talks about older men, then verse number 3, older women, verse number 4, young women, verse number 6, young men. And then he moves on to verse 9, two household servants. Those are working in the household. So he covers really the whole gamut of the adult population of the churches in Crete And he wants them to walk with God. And and here's the aim. You find this repeated one of three ways in this text. Here's the aim. At the end of verse 5, walk in godliness, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And then at the end of verse number 8, that one who's an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. And, And then here's the aim here at verse 10, showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. In other words, we want to be the kind of people who minimize skepticism and we become an illustration of the grace of God. And that's what he picks up on in verse 11. Look here at verse 11. Here's one of these lengthy salvation passages in Titus. Now now look what happens. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, that's negative, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's positive. And so what you have in this text is you've got these ethical obligations, but you've got them because God has brought salvation, and there's a teaching ministry to the salvation of God. In other words, if you come to Christ as Savior, it makes all the sense in the world to have victory over sin. Now, what you've got to understand about salvation in the Bible is that salvation in the Bible comes in three tenses. Whenever you receive Christ, there's a past sense to it then. In the past, when we received Christ, God saved us from the penalty of our sins. Do you know if you've received Jesus Christ as Savior? Do you know your sin and guilt will never meet you again before God? It's gone. He saves us from the penalty of sin. God has no more penalties to meet out to you because of sin. But then there's a present element of salvation, and that is God saves us from the power of sin. We can be victorious, and no one who knows Christ has got to fail. We do, and God loves us anyway, but, but we don't have to. And Then there's a future element to salvation, and that is one day Jesus is going to establish His kingdom and come for us, and He is going to save us and deliver us from the very presence of sin. There will be a land that is fairer than day, and there will be no more sin or evil or wickedness, not even in ourselves, not even in those around us. It will be completely eliminated. Now, here's the thing. The past salvation from the penalty of sin and the future salvation from the presence of sin are guaranteed or not in doubt. God accomplishes all of that. It's the current present tense of salvation that oftentimes is in question, and that's what he's talking about here. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to open ourselves to let God defeat us, uh, defeat the power of sin in our lives, or else we create suspicion in the world and they won't believe what we have to say about Jesus. That is what the text is saying. So the hope is, is that because Christ comes into our lives, we can have the power of the Holy Spirit, and instead of creating suspicion in the world, we can instead become an illustration of the power of God over sin. And whenever they see it in our lives, they can believe in the past tense of salvation, that He can save us from the penalty of sin, and the future tense of salvation, because they see it in the present tense in the people of God. Now, we're going to elaborate on that in our study of the book of Titus, but let me give you three hints real quickly. What's going to help you to have victory over sin now and have the power of salvation now? Number one, every day, and maybe multiple times a day, you've got to walk with God in His Word and in prayer. That's got to be more important to you than anything that's online, on your screen, on your television, on Netflix, on the Roku television service, YouTube, whatever. That is not nearly as valuable as what you will find in the Word of God and opening your heart and praying according to His Word before God. That's the first key. The second key is to be in the midst of a people, usually a small group, who will invite you and model for you and encourage you and exhort you to walk with God. You get close enough to them to where you're no longer isolated, but your life is open to them. I've invited six men to do that in my life in our own church. There are two outside of our church. And then i got a whole family that enjoys keeping me accountable. So uh, I've I've got all sorts of accountability and I need it. I need it. And so that's what you do. You have a small group and we do that through our Sunday school ministry. And there may be other ways to do it as well. And, And so You get with God every day, maybe several times a day in the Word and prayer. And then you get into a small group. And then third, the third thing that you do is that you never give up. I don't care what you're struggling with. Rarely is there ever immediate victory. Once in a while there is. But most of us have got to go through the strain, the struggle, and the striving to have victory. And listen, even if you relapse, don't give up. Confess it before God. Don't swim in the guilt. Just move on and walk with God in perseverance. And he'll help you all the way. Those are three keys to having victory over the power of sin. Because look, you don't want to create skepticism about Jesus. You want to be a witness to the resurrection power of Christ. And I want you just to imagine for a moment. (laughs) What would happen? What would happen if God really got a hold of you? What would happen in your life? And, and what would happen in your marriage if God really got a hold of you? And, and what would happen in your family? And, and what would happen to your finances and your temptations? What, what could happen to you at work if God really got a hold of you and changed and gave you victory over sin and temptation? Well, that, that's what the ministry of the Word is for. It will save you from creating skepticism, and lead you to being an illustration of the power of God into salvation. Well, but there's a third thing here in the text that, uh, where God saves us, the who and the how. And that is, that God uses the word to save the lost from shame to inclusion. God uses the word to save the lost from shame, shame that we might heap upon them, to including them in the family of God. Now, now Paul anticipates this in verses 2 through 4. He talks about, of chapter 1, he talks about eternal life uh, that God promised a long time before. He's manifested it through preaching. And, And then he talks to Titus and says he's a true son. He's not his biological son, but he's a son that he's won to the faith. And then he talks about the common faith. In other words, Titus' faith was just as real, important, and vital to Titus as it was to Paul. Paul didn't have any advantages there. And Titus didn't have any disadvantages because he was not an apostle. And then, this is lovely, at the end of verse 4, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Well, what is grace? Well, grace is giving us blessings that we do not deserve. Mercy is God withholding misery that we do deserve. Grace, God gives us blessings for free that we don't deserve. Mercy. God gives us; God withholds miseries from us that we do deserve, and peace is what happens when you have grace and mercy. You've got a lot of peace when you know God will give you blessings you don't deserve, and he's withholding miseries that you do, and that's peace. Well, this is what he's anticipating, and he picks up, picks up this same theme in chapter number 3. Here he addresses the lost and how God will save them, from shame that others may heap upon them, to inclusion in the family of God. Uh, And this is what he tells Titus in his church in um, Crete. He says in verse 2, Speak evil of no one, but instead to be peaceable, gentle, showing humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish." Now, there are three groups of those outside the faith he's talking about here. He's talking about rulers, he's talking about common people, and he's talking about heretics. And in verse 2, he says, Make sure, Titus, that you teach with authority to your people that they do not speak evil of any of these rulers, any of these common lost people, even any of these heretics. They've got to be very careful how they speak to them. Instead, be peaceable and gentle and and humble towards all of these lost people because, Titus, there was a day when we were also foolish. In verse number 3. And then he goes to that great passage that has been a highlight of the church age for two millenniums. And he says in verse 4, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, he saved us. Not according to our works, but according to his mercy. He saved us. So here we are. We're foolish. We're disobedient. We have all the wicked qualities of the rest of the world, but God saved us. Now, Titus, teach your people to approach other people in the same way God approached you. We want you to do that. We want you to give yourself to that. In other words, the reason we are so patient and gentle and careful and attentive to those outside the Christian faith is that, beloved, one day God was the same way towards us. We didn't know him. We pursued our own way. And yet he came after us with great and abundant affection. Now look, if you've grown up in church all your life, this could be a struggle for you. I I, I didn't. So I have frustrations in other places, not usually with people outside the faith. But if you grew up in church... You may have a struggle with this. You you may think these people are scary, they're scandalous, they're silly. And you may just not understand why it is that they do the things they do. Well, they're lost. Hey, by the way, non-Christians act like non-Christians. Get used to it. That's just what they do. And so we're peaceable towards them. We're gentle towards them. We're humble towards every one of them, that we might win them to Christ because that's precisely the way God was with us. Now, if you're very frustrated with those outside the faith, let me encourage you to think about two things. One, if you grew up in church and you're frustrated with these folks, remember first, you started at a better place. You started at a better place. Let's imagine on a scale of one to ten, you grew up in a church, and so your family and their influence on you, even before you came to Christ, put you on a scale of one to ten at a six. And you received Jesus one day, and it's moved you to about a nine. And I mean, you're doing what God wants you to do. So in this time, you started at a six, but by God's grace, you've come to a nine, and you're grateful. But let's say you're a lost person, and you started at a zero, and today you're at a six. You see, that person's come much further even than the person that grew up in church. You see. So we've got to have some compassion on that and recognize the work of God's grace in some lost people's lives may even be larger than what's happened to us. Because we started at a better place. They started at a worse place, but have come much further. They had further to go. And thank God they have. But I want you to consider a second thing. Dr. Red Duke used to say, If you ever see a turtle on top of a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. Is that not true? You have had so much support, and you've had so much encouragement, so much teaching, so much exhortation. How in the world would someone who's had none of that ever compare with you? You see, you didn't get to where you are by yourself. Someone came along by God's grace to help you. So listen, can I just suggest something? Let's just be patient with those who don't know Christ. Let's be peaceable. Let's be gentle. Let's be humble towards them all. Let's not speak evil of them. Listen, let's not speak evil of the politicians. Let's not speak evil of the entertainers. I know that's hard. I struggle with that myself. Let's not speak evil of those we disagree with. Let's not do that. Let's do what the text says. That's not going to accomplish anything for the sake of Jesus Christ. Let's be humble, peaceable, and gentle towards all because we once were foolish. And even after some of us have come to Christ, we've been foolish. How much more those who never came, who have yet to come to Jesus Christ? So I, I want to propose something here. You're familiar with the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Lovely, rich words from Jesus in Matthew 7, 12. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the golden rule. I want to propose the diamond rule. Whereas the golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I want to propose that we do unto others as God has done unto us. And that's what the text says. Oh, in loving kindness, Jesus came my guilty soul to reclaim From sinking sand, he lifted me. With tender hand, he lifted me. From shades of night to plains of light. Oh, praise his name. His love lifted me. How about we do that with others? How about we practice the diamond rule? I heard of one fellow, a uh, Navajo man, who came to Christ after a life of a lot of wickedness over which he was ashamed. And somebody asked him one one day what he thought about God loving him and saving him by grace. And this Navajo man found a worm and gathered some leaves and put the worm on top of them and then let the, lit with fire the edge of those leaves. And he let those leaves burn and encroach upon the worm. And at just the right time before the flame caught the worm, he reached down and snatched the worm up. And he said to the one who asked, I was that worm. You know, I don't know who in the world loves you. Who doesn't? I don't know how your heart's been broken and how you've been rejected, forlorn, set aside. But I want to tell you, God loves you. You may feel like a worm today. Your moral life may be no better than that. God still loves you. I read recently of a colleague I had at Southwestern, Malcolm Yarnell, who I think is probably a leading theologian in the world. uh, Tremendous in all he writes and says. Very active soul winner, too. He was writing about the first time he heard Baptist statesman Herschel Hobbs preach. Dr. Hobbs had to have been 70 or 80 at the time when Malcolm heard him preach and uh, Dr. Hobbs got up and spoke and he extended the invitation like we'll do in just a moment and that morning three people came to Christ. One of them happened to be a senior adult man with a cane. The other happened to be a provocatively dressed young man who had apparently an elaborate and attention-getting earring in his ear. And God saved both of them. The young, the old, the dignified, the one out of place, didn't make any difference. God loved them both and saved them in Jesus Christ. And, oh, people, would you please listen to me? If you were to come with your guilt and with humility to God today, he would save you in Jesus Christ and take you just as you are. He loves you. He loves you. And Jesus paid that price at the cross to suffer in your place. And he's alive now. Nearly all of us spoke with him this morning. And he would love to come into your life and claim you and make you his own. Would you open yourself today for that? And I I want to encourage you. Some of you have already done that. But you need to follow him in baptism or some of you need to become part of this church. You can trust him. You can trust him. Every way He leads you, you can trust Him. He's never made a mistake. Never has. You can turn your burdens over to Him. Anything in your life, you can give it all to Him because He loves you and He is able. I want us to pray about it and then we'll sing and we're going to encourage you to come to give your heart and life to Christ or to follow God in some element of His will. Would you stand with me quickly, please, and let's pray together.